you are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information visit commongroundcma.org. So, last week, Mark Cole came up here and did a fantastic job of presenting the book of Haggai to us. Uh, and the big question out of the book of Haggai is, is now the right time? Because it just doesn't seem like now is a good time to move forward with God's kingdom. We all kind of deal with that. We, we look for a perfect timing. Like, is now the time to start a family? Should we even start a family? Uh, the days are tough and rough. But he says, you know what? It's always been like that. Um, it's always been broken. Uh, so now is a good time regardless of what the circumstances are. Now, Zechariah was the younger counterpart to the prophet Haggai. They both worked together at the same time. It was at the time when the Israelites had come out of the Babylonian exile. Seventy years they'd been in exile. They're starting to wrap that period up. They are allowed to come back to Jerusalem, and it's in ruins. And one of the things that needs to be rebuilt is the temple. Because the temple was very important. It was, it was the place where God dwelt in the midst of his people. It was the place where the Messiah who was to come would initiate God's kingdom into this world and, and bring redemption to people. Um, it is also the place where all the nations, not just Israel, but it was always God's plan that the temple would be the place where all the nations would come together to call upon the name of God. So you can see why it's essential that they start building that. The only problem was is the people really didn't have a heart for it. And they started focusing on their own things. And, uh, and as we learned last week, they weren't using their time as if it were God's time. Now, this is an interesting thing, time. Um, I hope some of you guys budget. You know, budget your finances, make sure everything's where it needs to be and that sort of thing. Have you ever thought about budgeting your time? You know, barring accident or illness or something like that or the Lord's return, we all are given the same amount of time today, 24 hours. What are we going to do with that 24 hours? How are we going to use that time? What decisions uh, do we make? I believe that the Bible tells us as the church that we should be using our time wisely for the days are evil. And the question I think we have to ask ourselves as the church is, are we doing that? Are we using our time wisely? And are we careful with the opportunities that God has given to us? Now, I think a lot of you know that I'm a little bit of a Lord of the Rings, uh, Lord of the Rings nut. Uh, I, I love Tolkien and, and anything he's got to say. I thought they did a really good job in the movies. You, you might remember that scene if you saw the movies where Frodo, who had the job of taking this horrible ring into a horrible place and getting rid of it once and for all. And his, uh, his mentor and his friend, Gandalf, the, the wise wizardly guy, um, they were sitting there talking and Frodo says this, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. Now the reason that's such a great statement in the movie is because we, we all can resonate with that. We probably all said, I wish this hadn't happened. <laughs> At least I have. <laughs> but I think there are times in life when, when we go, I just, man, when I look around at what's going on, I just, I, I wish it wasn't me in this time. I wish it wasn't me in this circumstance. That's what Frodo was saying. I wish the ring had never come to me. And that everything that led to that happening, he said, I wish that hadn't happened. 
And then Gandalf says to him, So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Isn't that great? I mean, we don't get to choose how life is going to roll. But what we do get to choose is what we're going to do with it. Uh, we, we don't get to choose our circumstances all the time, but we do get to choose the attitude in which we face these circumstances. And believe it or not, that's a lot about what the book of Zechariah has to say. So I'm going to just jump right into it. If you read through the book, one of the, one of the nice things about, the, about this book is it's got some of the best messianic prophecies you'll find in the Old Testament. Uh, I just want to give you an example of, of a couple of them. In, in chapter 6, verse 12, we are told that a new ruler will come to Jerusalem, and he's called the, the branch. And he's not the only one to use that term, the branch. Isaiah used it, Jeremiah used it as well. And the idea was that this would be a branch from the family tree of David. That this Davidic king will come at some time and set everything right. Uh, So we're told about that. We're told that he will be righteous and that he'll be humble in chapter 3, verse 8. And that he would be the one who finally completes God's temple. See, here's the thing. As these guys were rebuilding the temple under the direction of Haggai and Zerubbabel and Ezra and, 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 and Zechariah, they kind of stopped back and looked at their handiwork and they, they kind of put a sad face on because it wasn't as wonderful as Solomon's temple. The former temple had so much glory and so much beauty and theirs was just kind of plain. And they were instructed that it doesn't matter because it, it, it's not the building, it's who dwells in that building, and that's God. And, and besides that, that temple isn't really the temple that God is building. The temple that he plans to build in Zechariah's day would come in the future, and guess what that temple would be? Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. That's where God would dwell in the midst of this world. And remember that the temple was built... So that God had a place to dwell. So that the Messiah could work redemption. And so that the nations could gather. Ooh, that's a little scary to think that God has chosen little drab plain old me to be the place where the nations might gather to hear who he is. We're also told in the book of Zechariah that this Messiah, in contrast to the shepherds who feed themselves at the expense of the flocks, uh, would be a good shepherd. And he would care for the flock and provide for them. Yet the flock would reject him. And when that rejection happened, the Lord's wrath would be poured out, not on the flock, but on the shepherd. The shepherd would be smitten, stricken, and the flock would scatter. The shepherd would be sold for silver pieces, 30 of them. All of this is in the book of Zechariah. It's like you're reading the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John while you're reading through this. All this was done so that this shepherd, this Messiah, this Davidic king who we now know as Jesus Christ could cleanse this flock from all of their sins and every moral stain. There it is, the gospel in the book of Zechariah. Now, what do we do with that? 
Um, well, I think we've got to go to chapter 7. And we're going to see some things in chapter 7 and kind of work our way through here that um, we're going to have to figure out, well, what did it mean for them back then? What does it mean for us today? So let's just start reading in chapter 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to enter and to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done so for many years? Now, it just seems like a whole bunch of information there. We have exact times, who was ruling, who the people were that came from Bethel, um, who they talked to. Uh, they, they, they talked to the priests and all the prophets that were assembled at that time. And they had a question. And the question was, so we've been fasting all this time for nearly 70 years during the fifth month. Is it time to quit? Is it time to quit? Now, what we don't see when we read this text is, is, is some little things that we have to dig into through Bible study and, and, and learning about uh, some of the words that are used in there and some of the particulars that we may not have noticed. Like, for example, Bethel was known for a place of apostasy in that time. It was known for a place that really wasn't walking in tune with God. And then when you look at the two names, the representatives that were coming and say, hey, can we quit doing the fast now? Um, their names were not given as Hebrew names, but as Babylonian and Persian names. And so one of the little things that's tucked away in this text that's hard for us to see at face value is more than likely these guys were saying, hey, look how religious we are. Look how righteous we have been these past 70 years. Is enough enough? It's easy to look at that and say, well, what a rotten attitude, but don't we do that sometimes to God? Don't we sometimes tell God, well, isn't enough enough? Haven't I done this and haven't I done that? And we don't realize it when we're doing it, but sometimes that comes out of this, this brokenness in us that desires to do it ourselves rather than do it God's way. To be self-righteous rather than have God's righteousness. Or that maybe somehow we're living our faith in such a way that it's going to impress God. And we're going to manipulate Him into doing things a different way. That's just our broken nature. That's, that's how we often act. But we're kind of doing the same thing when we say, is it, is it, can we, do we have to continue this fast? Do we have to keep doing it this way? <laughs> well, I think we have to ask ourselves, well, what is a fast anyway? Why were they doing that? Well, we're going we're gonna to answer that question a little bit later on as we go through here. So that takes us to the next section. That kind of sets us up. This is the great challenge in Zechariah's time. What are we going to do about this fast? What are we going to do about our religious observances? So in verse 4, we're told that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Say to all the people of the lands and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? Those were the prophets before the the fall of Jerusalem. 
when Jerusalem was was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? So God comes back with a question. And he says, yeah, I'm aware of what you've been doing during the fifth month. I've, I've also noted the seventh month too. We'll talk about those months in a minute here. When he asked this question, was it for me that you fasted? That was a completely rhetorical question because the answer was already known. No. They were fasting for themselves. And that's, again, something we still do to this day. If somebody fasts, there's times when they just don't understand what a fast is. And I remember a friend of mine, I was a brand new baby Christian, and this was the guy that led me to Jesus. (laughs) And he said that he was fasting, and I'm going, you're what? Does that mean you're moving quicker now? I don't understand. What is that? And so he explained that he was, well, I'm, I'm doing without food for a while. And I'm like, oh, okay, I understand that. I mean, I've had to have medical fasts and those kind of things before surgery and whatnot. So uh, I said, so why are you doing that? He said, because I'm, I'm really hoping that God will answer my prayers. And so that was my initial understanding of what a fast was, was that somehow by going without food and denying myself of something, that I was going to impress God enough that he'll say, okay, I'll answer that prayer. Okay, you see our, our humanity, we, we, we just mess things up and we forget, well, what, what did God even set these things up for? Well, let's answer that question. What is a fast? A fast is meant to be a demonstration of sorrow and repentance. If any of you have ever had someone that you dearly loved pass away, a couple years ago it was my brother after a motorcycle accident. I had no appetite. I don't even remember when I started eating again after I lost my brother. Because all I knew was that I was so broken hearted to lose my big brother that food was not important to me. The sorrow had taken over. Now when God institutes a fast, it's, it's, it's not, it's to be a broken heartedness over our own fallen condition. You see, the issue that's at hand here is motivation. Are, are, are we motivated just for selfish reasons or are we motivated by God? Do we do it for God or do we do it for ourselves? When God said, when you eat, you eat for yourselves. And He says, when you fast, you do the same thing. It's not for me. Your motivation is wrong. So if we're motivated by God, then then we should take steps of repentance and we should grieve over the brokenness of mankind. And and most of our grief should be inward for our own sins. I'm not going to grieve for Chris's sins. I'll grieve that, that, that it happens to him and how it affects him. But my greater grief is the fact that I sin that I'm not obedient, that I'm not walking in faithfulness to God at some given time. And that's what a fast is for, to bring me to that point of realization. If we're just motivated by our, for ourselves, <laughs> we're probably going to show up to church and worship events and things like that and just say, hey, everything's okay here. I'm just fine. I think one of the greatest things that can happen to the modern church is for people to walk in and say, you know what, I'm pretty busted up. And I don't mean by this. I'm busted up inside. If you ask me, how are you doing? And I say, fine. I lied. Because I probably have something in this week where I go, you know what, I let my anger get a hold of me. Or I let my pride rule in making a decision or that sort of thing. What I should be able to say to, to my brothers and sisters in Christ is, I am, I am messed up. 
I am not okay. And my brothers and sisters should be able to say, that's okay, neither are we. This is a place where it's okay to not be okay. Because it's, it, we can't do it by ourselves. We need a Savior. We need a Messiah. We need that righteous branch who would come and enter in and turn these broken things that we are into a dwelling place for God. When I think of the work that that involves, I am sorrowful that God has to work so much on me. Now, if that leads to repentance, it's repentance is more than, well, I feel pretty bad about that, God. Thanks for pointing that out. I'll just slither under the door while I leave. If that's where we stop, then, well, we really didn't repent. Because repent is, is to change your direction. Like Gandalf said, to make a decision to do something with the time that you have before you. And that change of a direction is, God, I don't want to walk in this brokenness. I don't want to walk in this sinfulness. I don't want to walk in this failure. I don't want to repeat that anymore. What I want to do is walk in obedience and faithfulness to you. So the first section shows us the people who should be for God. This next section should show us the people obedient to God. But what we see in here is a negative example. In verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner. Oh, let me change that word so we understand it. The migrant or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Now, this was the word that God gave through the former prophets to the earlier generation of Israelites. And this is what God says in verse 11. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard. That's, that's a really wild description that we're given there of the condition, the spiritual condition of Israel before the Babylonian exile. God graciously gives his word to them, and their response is, I don't want to hear it. I'm, I'm not even going to pay attention to that. I'm, I'm turning away from that. I'm going like this while, while you're talking to me, God. And, and, and my heart, man, I am setting my heart against that. They made their hearts diamond hard in verse 12, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And listen to this. He said, as I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. Ooh. (laughs) We see the consequences that happened with a lack of repentance uh, 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 when we harden our hearts when we stop our ears when we read God's word and say no, no I'm not going to pay attention to that or when we see something in life where we feel the spirit prompting us do this but we go oh, not me someone else that, that, that that condition what happens is we're not listening to God so why should we expect him to listen to us if we wonder why are my prayers hindered And we're told in Scripture that if if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's all right. Um, If if I'm in an unrepentant state before God, 
Why should I expect him to work the way I want him to work? Why should I expect him to answer our prayers? If my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling at me, probably the first thing I need to do is a heart check and say, God, reveal to me, show me in your spirit how I'm not listening to your word. Show me where where I'm going things my own way. I'm motivated by my way of doing things instead of being motivated by you and your kingdom. You see, I think the question we have to ask at this point was, how is repentance demonstrated? It it isn't demonstrated through religious observance. Well, I'm going to go to church instead of sleep in. I'm repenting. I'll give a little extra when the when the offering plate comes by. I'm I'm repenting. You know, those are just ways of trying to buy God off. Repentance is is observed through transformation driven obedience. That's 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 how it occurs. When 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 I'm repented, what I'm saying is, Jesus, I need to be more like you and less like me. I need you to change me. I desperately need you to make me more like you are, to say the things that you would say, to do the things that you would do, to take the actions and and, and whatnot, to hold the attitudes that you yourself hold. And I know that's possible through the Holy Spirit. That's why He gave them to us. But did you catch that in the text? That when the former prophets spoke, they, they spoke from the Spirit. And still people wouldn't listen. You know, I think that one of the greatest needs I have right now is I've got a pretty good relationship with the Father. I've got a pretty solid relationship with the Son. What's my relationship like with the Spirit? Because He's the, the major worker who is God right now in, in our lives. Am I, am I soft-hearted towards the Spirit? Am I open to the Spirit? Am I building a relationship with Him? Walking in Him, with Him, in Him? Uh, those are the things I I have to pursue or I won't step into repentance as I should. Now the great failure, you might wonder, why was God so hard on Israel to have the Babylonians come in and wipe them out? Well, it's because of this. We we talked about this word, this Hebrew word, chesed. It is the Hebrew word from which we get the Greek word agape. So you understand agape love. All through the Old Testament, there are many times where the word chesed was used, and it was God's passion to bring that blessing, to bring that that grace into every nation of the world. Go back and read through the Old Testament again and look for little clues where God talks about the peoples. He talks about the nations. He wasn't just about reaching one nation. He was about reforming one nation so that they would invade all the other nations with the kingdom of God, bringing the chesed. When God said to Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and other nations are going to be blessed because of you. The word chesed was used there. But you see what happened through Israel's history is they shut down, and they kept it all to themselves. They, they, they just got this idea that they were special we're God's chosen people. And so this is all for us and too bad for all those dirty, rotten other nations out there that don't know God. And that's a warning for us as a church because it's easy for us to repeat that attitude. To go into that same cycle and say, this is all about us. 
too bad for everybody else. So when do you make your heart diamond hard? What in this life, what brokenness that comes your way might cause you to turn the shoulder, (laughs) stop the ears, and harden the heart? What need might be presented right before you or me where we might say, well, no, (laughs) I'll let somebody else take care of that. Because I think God means for this message to be very personal, not just, hey, let's look at Israel and how they fouled up. But to ask ourselves, you know what, the generations before us have kind of, kind of not done so well. Can I be the generation? Can I be the people that actually steps into obedience and faithfulness with God? My wife comes from a very broken family. Uh, broken in many ways. Uh, her parents were divorced when she was very young. Mom left the family. It was dad who stuck with them. And then they got remarried. And then they got divorced again. You hear about all the different mother-in-law jokes. I'm not making a joke here. My mother-in-law was bipolar. That was part of why their family was so broken. And for some reason, she loved me more than her own kids. I don't know why. But she had a thing for Jesus in her later years. A huge thing for Jesus. But she suffered greatly from depression and, and, and other things. It was very hard to understand that. And we come to realize that when that's in the family, it sometimes passes down. And I remember Lori having a conversation with me. She says, I, you know, when I see my mom, I'm, I'm scared. I worry. Will I be like that too? And I don't know where this came from. I, I, I'm going to give credit to God because I'm not that smart. I just said, no, you don't have to be. You, you get to be the cycle breaker. Because you get to choose right now. It doesn't have, we don't have to be victims. It doesn't have to be inflicted upon us. Yeah, we might struggle with it, but, but we don't have to be just like it was before. And that was the message for Israel from Zechariah. As bad as it was before, we don't have to be like that. And you know what? I'm proud of my wife because she made the decision to break the cycle. And then when I look at our daughter, I go, holy cow. Where did she come from? I might be a little biased as a dad, but I think she's probably the coolest human being on the face of the earth. I I kid you not, when she steps into my presence, it just gets a little bit holier when that happens. So you see, instead of, instead of a generational sequence being degenerative, once a generation makes, makes the call that says, we're going to be that generation, we're going to be the one that breaks the cycle of brokenness and sinfulness and rebellion against God, we're, we're going we're gonna to go for it. Imagine what the generation after us would look like. People obedient to God. Well, that takes us to the next section in verse 18, and we're going to see a people celebrating God. Zechariah says, The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month... Wait a minute, we were only talking about the fifth month earlier, weren't we? And the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, 
shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Now, this is important. We don't want to miss this. Well, first of all, let me explain these different fasts. They're talking about these months, 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th month. Well, to understand this, we have to go back into biblical history and look at how Jerusalem was destroyed. And it actually begins, the first fast would be the 10th month. Because in the 10th month of the year uh, was when the siege of Jerusalem began. Then the year passed, six months later, comes the fourth month of the new year. That's when the walls of Jerusalem were breached. For an entire month, the Babylonians fought hard and ruthlessly and brutally to subdue Jerusalem. So it took them a month. In the fifth month, Jerusalem completely fell. In the seventh month, Gedaliah, who was the governor appointed by Babylon to rule over and to shepherd the people, the broken people that were left behind, was assassinated. And Babylon responded with severe repercussions. So it became the practice during the exile, during those months, for the Jews to fast because of those those events. The problem was they were fasting, they were sorrowful over the things that happened to them instead of the fact these things are happening to us because we have turned our hearts away from God. So God has given this great promise to Zechariah that says there will come a time when those fasts, that grieving over brokenness, is going to turn into feasting and joy. We have to understand that the end of every fast should lead to a feast. It was never God's desire to keep us perpetually locked into this, oh, I'm so horrible, oh, we're so broken, oh, we're so messed up, we're such dirty, rotten sinners. He never wanted us to be perpetually in that state. He wanted us to come out of that state. When you read that verse that's, that's in Romans, quoting, a, quoting an Old Testament text, um, sorrow lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We totally misinterpret that. You know, we think, oh, I'm really bummed out, but that's okay. Things will look better when the sun rises. No, it doesn't work that way all the time. What that verse applies to is a repentant sorrow can last for the night. But joy, freedom, redemption comes in the morning. That's that's the gospel. You know, the gospel isn't just, hey, you're a dirty, rotten sinner, and you're bound for hell unless you accept Jesus. The gospel is part of that, but it's also, and once you accept Jesus, you walk into a beautiful relationship with the creator of this universe that's going to last for eternity. And he is going to change you into a new critter. He is going to make himself reflect off of you. He's going to polish you until his reflection just shines everywhere you go. And this will enter into an eternal, lasting kingdom where eventually the tears we shed, the pains we feel, the sorrows we deal with in life will someday be wiped out. See, that's the whole of the gospel. I think something lost people need to see more of is our brokenness over our sin, our rebellion, not theirs. But then the transformation into joy when we really realize the grace of God that wipes away every iniquity, the love that cancels and blots out every sin. 
I think when lost people begin to see that and the, and the change that happens, they're going to start thinking a little bit about themselves. But if they just saw a people, a generation like the Israelites in the days of old, why would it matter to them? So this takes us to a new group, and that's a people who represent God. A people representing God. If we jump ahead into verse eight, or chapter eight, I'm sorry, uh, chapter eight is fantastic. Uh, in, in fact, let me read a portion of it here because it repeats something that was said to the people a long time ago. Uh, it's in verse. Uh, I lost it here. Uh, it's in verse uh, seventeen. These are the things that you shall do. Now, this is this is not to the people of old. This is to Zechariah's generation, and it's to our generation. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. You see where he's saying, you know, bear the fruit of repentance. And, and that was the almost exact list that was given to the, the Israelites before the Babylonians took them out. So there's always a second chance with God. The great challenge for every generation is to be different than the one before them. Okay? And, and, and that's true. Every generation that comes usually is a lot different than the one that preceded that. But for us as Christians, what we have to do is we have to say, man, where the generation before us failed, where they dropped the ball, we'll be different. With God's grace and the power of His Spirit, we can be different. We can be the cycle breaker of generations. So in chapter 8, verse 20, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples, and, and, and notice that's not people, Peoples, that's talking about nations and ethnic groups other than Israelites, Peoples shall come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. You see that picture there, what God is promising? That, that if we actually step into repentance and transformational obedience, the effect that it has on the entire world... God's saying there's going to come a time when people are going to flock to Jerusalem. They're going to be inviting each other, saying, let's go there. This God is doing something. I don't know if you're going, but I'm going. And if I have to go myself, I'll go myself, but come with me. And when it says that they're going there to entreat the favor of the Lord, they're coming there looking for grace. Because there ain't anywhere else we're going to find it. Nowhere in this universe is grace offered to us other than through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But do we see that happening now? Maybe not. Maybe this time has come upon us to make a decision as to what we're going to do with that time and ask, can we be that generation? 
Can we be the ones who forsake our sin and walk hand in hand with God in such a way that the result's going to be unbelieving people saying, I don't know what's happening in your life, but I want to walk with you and I want to walk with this God that you're walking with. Can we be that people? Because you know, all the shouting in the world isn't going to accomplish anything unless we make a decision as to how we're going to walk with this holy God who loved us so much that he gave his son, Jesus Christ. That we might not perish, but that we might have everlasting life. And that's not just his desire for me. It's the desire for everybody I come into contact with. So will this be the generation, church, that brings the kingdom of God into Rapid City or whatever community you might have come here from? You know, I think Hills Alive is a fantastic thing. Please understand me. It's been going on for a lot of years, and I've attended many of them. And I am actually floored by the missional unity that happens in our town to make this event happen and to keep it free for anybody who might wander in there and maybe get the chance to hear about Jesus Christ. Hills Alive is a fantastic thing. But how come it only happens once a year? How come the only time that our churches in Rapid City can band together to accomplish a great thing is then? And why do we ignore the most vulnerable, the outcast, the marginalized, who walk the streets with us? When will we as a city own homelessness? Because it's not going away. And we have one of the largest concentrations of, of transient folks moving through our way. But I fear that we Christians are stopping our ears, turning our shoulders, and hardening our hearts. Would there ever come a time that maybe in Rapid City all the churches would band together with the same drive that makes Hills Alive happen to say, let's start reaching out to the peoples, to the nations around us. Will this be the generation that brings God's kingdom into our city? And if so, when? I'm thinking right now is a good time to start. So let's pray. Lord, you're the only one that can move hearts. You're the only one that can transform souls. You're the only one that can set our feet on the path to which we should be walking. You're the only one that can change minds and bring repentance that leads to a desire, an earnest, earnest desire to walk hand in hand with you. And not just for our own sake, but for for the people that you surround us with. So Lord, help us begin today. Help us to begin with, with a true repentance, that, that desire that says, I want that change in my life. I want transformation. I, I want to be restored as your image bearer. 
And Lord, help us to remember that that, that's a daily thing to pursue after that. But it's made possible through the, the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be a people that seeks to live our lives in a way that benefits others, especially the vulnerable, especially the marginalized, especially the the forgotten and neglected of our city. And Lord, may we never be a people that are afraid to celebrate you and what you have done, especially to celebrate your triumph over our sins. Lord, may we testify in our lives the grace that you've given to us through Jesus. And God, may we be a people, may we be a generation that will join you in your passion and your mission to make your name known in every corner of this world. And Lord, may we be willing to start right here at our own doorstep, but to not stop until we've covered this globe. Lord, it scares me to ask that, but it it means that I'm saying part of this transformation is I'm willing to go wherever you might call me to whomever you might send me. But Lord, may you find here before you a generation like Isaiah. Here we are, Lord. Send us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.